those acts of uh, continued repression have indeed led to self-censorship, have uh, led to people who whose work is actually to denounce human rights violations and other forms of uh, violating the, the law in Venezuela are afraid to speak up and are doing it less. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts with me, Stephanie van den Berg. And me, Janet Anderson. And at the top of today's show, we'd like to thank you for listening. So we need to remind you that you can support us by joining our Patreon and get some perks, including the extra podcasts of our War Criminals Book Club. But if you do want to support us but don't want to deal with the Patreon and even more of our banter, you can also give us what you can miss into our tip jar, which you can find on our website on the supporters page. And with the cringe advertising part of the intro over, we can get around to today's show where we finally talk about a country that's been on our list to do for quite a long time. Yeah, we've um, had this in mind for a while and we got a peg, as they say in the journalistic business, when at the very end of June, the International Criminal Court gave the green light to the prosecutor to resume an investigation into alleged human rights abuses by Venezuelan officials or what you know generally what's going on in Venezuela. Venezuela has since appealed that, but the procedure is ongoing. And to explain what's going on in Venezuela and how the ICC fits in, we have two human rights experts, legal experts who've been following the country closely for the past few years. First we have Marta Valinas, who is a member of the UN-backed Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Hi Martha. Hi everyone. Martha is also a certified expert at Justice Rapid Response and formerly worked at the ICC Office of the Prosecutor and also has been a legal advisor to other organizations we know well on this podcast, Redress and the Women's Initiative for Gender Justice. And we also have uh, Joanna Frivet, a member of the panel of experts from the Organization of American States on Venezuela. Hi, Joanna. Hi, everyone. And Joanna is also a barrister for Guernica 37 Chambers, which has also advised the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC, which earned her a IMDB mention, which Stephanie saw when she was uh, Googling. Uh, it was back in that 2013 um, documentary about uh, Luis Moreno Campo, I remember, on the ICC. For a general background, we're going to do our quick and dirty summary, and I get to join in this time. So it will be not just Stephopedia, it will be Janet and Stephopedia. Off you go, Steph. You start. Uh, Venezuela is a Latin American country and has been a member of the ICC since the court became a legal reality in 2002. And it was run by Socialist President Hugo Chavez until his death in 2013. And he was well known for his anti-American, anti-capitalist socialist policies, which were quite divisive. After his death, the country had 
a full-blown economic crisis, whose chosen successor, Nicolas Maduro, was at the helm then. Lots of protests followed, violently repressed by the government, with over 130 protesters being killed and over 15,000 wounded. That's based on what was said in the OAS report. A number of political prisoners uh, soared, allegations of arbitrary detention, torture of opposition supporters also. And then in 2000. 18, Venezuela held presidential elections marred by accusations that the vote was rigged. Maduro says he won, but the EU and the US notably don't recognize the results and support the opposition interim government in exile, which was at that time headed by, oh, now my uh, Spanish pronunciation is going to be bad, by Juan Guaido, Guaido probably, but I'm sure our experts will know better. Even before the presidential elections, there have been these reports of protests and violent uh, repression of them. And then prosecutor Ben Suda of the ICC announced that she had opened a preliminary investigation into the situation in Venezuela. And in that announcement, she said she would look into alleged crimes under the Rome Statute since April 2017 in the context of the demonstrations and related political unrest. Picking that up, we've got the referral of the situation by six ICC state parties in 2018 to the ICC prosecutor. And then fast forward a load. And in November 2021, the OTP actually opened its uh, full investigation. That's now the subject of this drawn out legal process. The state says no. Judges said yes in June, which is what gave us the chance to go back to this and the state's now appealing. But I'm sure we'll get back into that a little bit more. Yeah. And one of the things that makes it interesting that I forgot about was that uh, Ben Suda or the ICC had already opened this preliminary investigation and the referral came afterwards. But it was kind of a way to push the ICC into opening a full-blown investigation, but then that took another, um, so it's 2018, they did it in 2021, they opened the procedure, so it took another three years to actually decide this. So there's a lot going on and everything takes a long time and it's very complicated in Venezuela. Martha, that was a lot of background. You were in the UN fact-finding mission. Can you paint us a picture of the situation in Venezuela uh, on the ground in 2017-18, when, when the beginning of these, this idea that this would be a case for the ICC happened, and maybe also tell us a bit about what it's like now, currently, in 2023. Well, as you know, it's complicated to speak about Venezuela because it has been going through such a complex and multidimensional crisis for almost a decade now. So we're talking about, you know, a social, political, economic, humanitarian crisis, and also human rights crisis, as we have said several times. So I'm talking about this period starting 2014, as, as you mentioned, and up until the present, really. What our fact-finding mission has um, found and, and documented in several reports to date is that there has been a systematic use of arbitrary detentions, and some of which are then followed by torture and other forms of ill treatment, including sexual and gender-based violence. And in some of those cases, there's also enforced disappearances that typically last uh, a short period of time against persons who are perceived to be opponents of the government. 
that is, persons who dare to think differently from the government and to express their views, be it in a public demonstration or protest, as you mentioned, in 2014, then in 2017 as well. These were the mass protests that have been widely reported in the media and that have resulted in deaths by state security forces, uh, but also, you know, people who are expressing their views in other ways. Uh, we're talking about journalists, human rights defenders, social activists, humanitarian workers, and of course, also members of the political opposition. So what we have found and documented is that there has been a continuous effort to quash this opposing and dissenting views uh, to, to the government in various ways uh, through the type of crimes and human rights violations that I just mentioned to you. And by the way, I must say that, you know, we uh, as a fact-finding mission were focusing on the documentation of these types of violations specifically because they are the ones that are specifically mentioned in our mandate. There are many other human rights violations taking place in, in Venezuela, including of social and economic rights, which we haven't looked at as a mission. But going back to what I was saying, what we have documented is that there has been this continuous use of arbitrary detentions, sometimes followed by torture in certain detention centers, particularly, which are the ones that are under the control of the uh, civilian and the military intelligence agencies, uh, but not only, but particularly in, in these detention centers. And this, of course, has led to many of these groups of, of people that I, that I mentioned to you who want to express their, their views and sometimes their dissenting views with government policies uh, and decisions, feeling very scared of doing so. Right. And what we have found also recently is that those acts of uh, continued repression have indeed led to self-censorship, have uh, led to people who whose work is actually to denounce human rights violations and other forms of uh, violating the, the law in Venezuela are afraid to speak up and are doing it less. I'm trying to imagine what it's like trying to document those kinds of crimes, when you have this big mass of different things happening, you're talking about a very long period. And I understand your mandate is quite specific, so you can't document everything. But then you're kind of reliant to some degree on people on the ground telling you what's been going on and the human rights defenders there. I mean, you're suggesting people will find it even difficult to to talk to you or to tell you more about what's going going on because they're they're feeling... Uh, worried themselves about what may happen to, to them? You know, I was referring mostly actually to their fear of speaking up uh, publicly and even demonstrating in Venezuela. Of course, this doesn't stop everybody from doing so. And there are very brave individuals, you know, activists, human rights defenders, journalists who continue to do to doing so. Uh, now, um, addressing your question of uh, how difficult it is to to access this information and if people are afraid to to speak with the fact finding mission, I think you know the fact that we, we always have a discussion, obviously, at the beginning of any interview that we do in terms of consent of the source, you know, to publish their their name in our reports or 
to eventually share the information that they share with us. And we do have many uh, situations where people ask us not to publish their names, and we've done so. You, you can see in our report there are several uh, sources that are, are anonymous, and of course we have you know their names in our database. Uh, but we've taken care to try to ensure that that confidentiality in the terms that I've just explained to you. But even then, people do mention several times that fear of being seen, you know, by the government, especially people who whom we speak with and who are still living in Venezuela. And depending on, you know, who they are implicating in what they are telling us about, then they 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 are afraid of being identified or some of them. And and you know in particular contexts where we've investigated, such as last year, we, we focused on the Arco Minero del Orinoco region. It's a region in the south of the country, dominated by exploitation of natural resources, including gold. And we've documented several human rights violations that are taking place in that region and that are connected to the illegal exploitation of, of gold. And we've found that in these type of areas where people feel even, even more vulnerable, then this fear increases. So there's there's different reasons, uh, you know, be it the, the person who is trying to do their journalistic work or to a person who is who feels completely vulnerable in a remote area of the country and, and feels completely unprotected by the state security forces precisely and, and you know, completely vulnerable to illegal armed groups that are present in that area as well. And so there are several, let's say, sources of fear, yes, which we try to to overcome by uh, ensuring confidentiality in our report. But this tells you a lot about the situation in, in the country and how people do not feel that, you know, the state apparatus, be the security forces or the judicial system would protect them. And Joanna, you are also part of an independent group of experts, this time from the Organization of American States. You looked also specifically in the OAS report at uh, this uh, legal uh, protections of people and uh, legal cases against the government's uh, abuses. What can you add to the kind of observations we heard from Martha? What do you see uh, when you research Venezuela for your for your panel? Is there anything you want to add or is there any specific thing that you want to highlight on when you are dealing with uh, people in Venezuela? I think I have three distinct comments to add to what Marta has said. The first thing that is very specific to the situation in Venezuela is how the judiciary is very involved in the commission of crimes against humanity. And this is something that we always have difficulties to convey and explain when you outline the scope and the types of crimes that we're dealing with. Because it's not just arbitrary detentions. It's very often people who've been arbitrarily detained and then who've gone before a judge who has seemingly legitimized further a detention against an alleged dissident, right? On charges that range anything from treason to theft, made up charges very often. And and this is a, a pattern that has been seen to be widespread and systematic. So what we see from this is that there's a real lack of separation of powers. The the authority in Venezuela, very much the state authorities control the judiciary. And that is very specific to Venezuela. And they do that by controlling the judges of the Supreme Court. 
And one of the things that we've noted in the last report of the OAS, in which we analyzed in detail the institutional reforms that the government has engaged in over the last two years, we've seen that this has actually worsened instead of improving. So the state of Venezuela is advertising itself as being a reforming state, a state in process of reforming legislations that were previously not up to standards. But what we've seen is that actually enacted legislations to entrench the uh, lack of accountability against high-level officials. So if I can explain this further, when you understand how the Supreme Court works, the Supreme Court acts as a filtering system for any claims of violations of human rights or crimes against humanity against high-level perpetrators. This means that if you want a situation investigated, you first need to go through the Supreme Court. As a result, if the Supreme Court judges and the Supreme Court panels are politically elected or have any kind of connections or lack of independence or impartiality, these claims just never go through. As a result, you simply have no cases investigated against the high-level perpetrators. The situation currently is that the government has enacted a law to authorize the judges of the Supreme Court their mandate to be extended by 12 years, where this is, is previously unconstitutional, now it's extended by 12 years. This means that whoever wins the elections next year, in 2024, it really does not matter because the high-level perpetrators who could have been investigated or prosecuted or put on trial um, to have their activities, actions, orders, or superior responsibility analyzed or scrutinized, this will not happen because the judges who are currently in place will stay for another 12 years. So this is a, a very dire situation, uh, to say the least. And this is one of the points that you mentioned. You said you had three things to add. Uh, what are the other two? I think um, the ongoing crime situation. Very much we, we focus on 2014 and 2017 as well, because this is the big wave of protests where the, the arrests were en masse and um, the numbers were significant. But the situation is ongoing. Very much like Marta said, we've seen that there are now increasingly crimes against the indigenous community, which is alarming because it's, they, it's linked to commercial interests in expanding regions that is very rich in Venezuela. And then the other thing that we see is that we see that crimes are now very much part of committed as part of a cover up. So crimes are focused and targeting the very little remaining NGO community and so civil society activists that are left and the victims who come forward and who report crimes because, yeah, because they're able to, right? Because if, we, if you have nobody to talk about crimes, it's like they never happened. And the third thing I think that is also quite important is to understand that it's not just a, a you know, a government that's pretending to be democratic and that where the, the legitimacy of the election is being questioned. This is a state that has been designated as a terrorist state by the US and linked to narco traffic across several Latin American countries. It, it, it's really been something that has been discussed and proven in, in many different forums. And as a result as well of this almost decade long now, right, we start, the crime started in 2014 and we're now in 2024, there has been very little accountability. 
And as a result, we see that there has been um, a huge wave of refugees and immigration, huge wave. The community of Venezuelans now in the US, we're talking about millions of people. In, in the neighboring countries, in Colombia, millions of Venezuelans and all these people are still stranded in, in no man's land. They can't go home and, you know, accountability is, is hard to come across. So it's, it's a very difficult situation that they're still currently experiencing as victims. So we're talking about 10 long years of, uh, of difficulty and we have, you know, Two, I mean, here represented just two organisations who are uh, who've been involved in doing investigations here. Plus, we know that the ICC uh, itself is involved in some kind of investigations. Marta, you mentioned the you know the fact that you had a specific mandate, and I'm wondering how do you kind of divide up or share or communicate? I mean, how does it work that you have all of these different organizations working in, in this space? Well, as an independent mission, we have really strived to, uh, you know, to be independent uh, in, in reality as much as possible. And that in part means that we, the three members of, of the mission, uh, define the focus of our investigations and methodology of our of our work. Of course, we take into consideration what other uh, also UN bodies are investigating and uh, documenting about Venezuela, as well as other organizations such as the OAS. But in terms of how we conduct our work, that has been very much in a in a very let's say individual slash independent manner. So we don't necessarily, you know, coordinate also or even, you know, discuss what will be the focus of our um, investigations or how to go about them. So it's more, you know, considerations that we just have as we discuss our work. Of course, we've been very much aware and conscious of the ongoing ICC investigation and it has been an interesting process for us to also accompany and to take into account in our own discussions about where to, to focus our, our work. That is, is as far as it goes. As you know, the ICC, the Office of the Prosecutor specifically, can and typically takes into account the information collected by fact-finding missions and commissions of inquiry. Uh, and it proves to be quite useful at times. And this has been the case also with the preliminary examination on Venezuela, and you can see that in several of the public submissions, public versions of the submissions of the Office of the Prosecutor, there's several references to the work of the, of the fact-finding mission. That has also been the case uh, with the recent complaint that has been filed by the Clooney Foundation for Justice in Argentina. And so we're, we're very pleased with that, you know, to be able to also give our input, let's say, to those processes of accountability, because that is the main aim of all of these efforts, right? Is that we each in our own mandates can be contributing to the same goal, which is to promote accountability, if not nationally, then internationally uh, and under universal jurisdiction laws as well. And so, you know, it's, it's more of this synergy, I think, between organizations that is very uh, potentially very productive. 
we have a plan to uh, carry on doing Venezuela with uh, some more podcasts. So thank you for mentioning already uh, the universal jurisdiction aspect. And before we head back to the ICC, which I know uh, Steph will uh, want to, to focus in on, I wanted to ask you, Joanna, how do you see independence as representing an organisation like that? Because they have a point of view on Venezuela, don't they? So are you independent? So the way that the panel was created and structured, it was very much as a result of the fact that it was a deadlock at the time, right? So back in the day, even though the ICC had jurisdiction over the situation, because Venezuela is a state party, there had been no state reform. The preliminary examination had been open, but from 2017 only. So leaving the bulk of the crimes at the time out of it. So I think the first task was really to start looking into the broader scope of it, right? The broader scope of criminality. And in terms of structuring, the experts are entirely independent from the OAS itself, which is a, a, a political organization, very much like, like the European Union, which is a, a, a conglomeration of, of different states that, that have their own agendas. But the experts uh, on the panels, so we have uh, Santiago Canton, who's the current head of the International Commission of Jurists. Um, we have uh, Mr. Eowyn Cutler, who's the a former Minister of Justice of Canada, Emmanuel Ventura, who's a former judge of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and myself. And our mandate is very much legal and independent, entirely independent. So we do not take instructions from the OAS. We do not receive budget from the OAS. The only thing that actually happens is that we were created by them and we coordinate when when we're releasing the report. So we tell them in advance, look, this is what we're focusing on and this is what's going to happen. This is our timeline. And, you know, how can we make this work together using the platform that they offer with the state parties? And this is actually how we galvanize the support for the first six uh, state parties of the U.S., to make a collective referral, the first collective referral ever to the ICC, because of that platform that the OAS offered, that was absolutely unique and really allowed in the course of the hearings where we heard victims, where we heard insiders, where we heard international experts talk about the situation and galvanized the opportunity to discuss the subject in depth and for the states who have aligning agendas to think, this is a cause that we actually do want to support. And then this is very much what we're trying, still trying to do. So that, that covers the independence and impartiality. In terms of the scope of what we're doing, and I must say here that the work of the UN fact-finding mission has been very important for us as well. They, they have an ear to the ground that is absolutely essential because of the scope they have, right? As the US panel, we work with we work with NGOs. So we work with NGOs that are willing to collaborate and support and provide information. But between our reports, we very much need this fact-finding aspect of it. Because as legal experts, the last report focused very much on the legal analysis of the legislative reform and not so much on the crime base and on the facts, because we understand that we want our work to be complementary to the ICC's investigation and complementary to the UN fact-finding missions. And we want it to be useful. And because we have the capacity to also interact with Venezuelan local experts to understand the specific legal system, that's what the reports are currently doing. And the next report will actually focus 
specifically on an analysis of the domestic prosecutions that Venezuela has started against uh, local perpetrators. If we circle back to the ICC, in 2021, it finally said it would open an investigation into Venezuela. Khan went there several times and received also some flack for signing a memorandum of understanding with the Maduro government. Two memorandums. Two memorandums, yes, that's true. Joanna, do you want to give us a condensed version of what is going on in the ICC investigation in the sense of where it is at? My sense is that they said they would open an investigation in 2021 and then just got kind of marred into all these Venezuelan attempts to delay it by asking deferrals and, and that's a whole procedure. And then while they're doing that, they cannot actually investigate. I hope you can tease out some of what is happening there. And also, you mentioned to us that in the uh, preliminary examination, Ben Suda said she would only focus on crimes from 2017. Now for this actual investigation, is the timeline different? Yes. So following the OAS states, the six states of the US who referred the situation to the ICC, the preliminary examination itself was broadened by the Office of the Prosecutor to start from the 12th of February 2014, which is when the mass of the civil protest started in Venezuela. So we're looking at now the, and if you will, the entirety of the, the criminal scope of activities and the territory, the whole of the territory is covered in terms of territorial scope. After the opening of the investigation, almost at the same time, there was the, this first signing of the memorandum of understanding that was, look, very generic in, in nature in terms of the fact that it, it, both parties acknowledged that they had different views as to whether the crimes were within jurisdiction, which is fine. Both parties acknowledged that, you know, there needs to be further determination on that. And they acknowledged that there would be efforts by the state of Venezuela to engage in reform, to engage in domestic accountability. So in principle, on paper, it's, it's difficult to, to argue against the fact that this interferes with justice. However, the optics may seem unpleasant, if you, if you may say so. It is a required part of the work of the ICC prosecutor because we all understand the difficulties of having to investigate from outside a territory with a country that does not cooperate. And I think probably Prosecutor Karen Khan understands this better than anybody else because he did represent the government of Kenya at some point and was very aware of the difficulties. So that happened in 2021 and almost immediately we entered into this process of admissibility challenge. Now, the state of Venezuela is entitled to question whether, after the opening of the investigation, is entitled to question whether or not the crimes fall within jurisdiction. And this does not only relate to the type, nature, territorial scope and temporal scope of the crimes, but also as to whether the state itself is discharging its primary obligations to engage in investigation and prosecutions in a genuine manner. Yeah, this is the infamous complementarity. If you prosecute the crimes yourself, then the ICC cannot step in or should not step in. Exactly. And that's core, absolutely core to the notion of the existence of the court. The court is not there to interfere and to, to violate sovereignty. The court is there to interfere as an emergency room. That's what it is, the, the emergency room of justice. When the states cannot deliver or does not want to deliver or is unable to deliver, then the ICC can step in. And that is what was 
the analysis, the, the question that was posed to the pretrial chamber examining these facts. Now, in its, in its pleadings before the court, the state of Venezuela has argued, firstly, that it does not acknowledge that crimes against humanity were committed at all, so that the contextual elements are met. So according to them, there may have been violations, human rights violations, as, as they qualified, but not crimes against humanity, and therefore entirely outside jurisdiction of the ICC. But then, alternatively, even if they are within the jurisdiction of the ICC, they go on to criticize the fact that the referral was made by state parties as a political, political referral, questioning actually the very principles that underlie the, the, the Rome Statute, which the pretrial chamber kicked out very swiftly in two paragraphs in their decision. And then they go on to say that they're engaging in, in reform, institutional reform that, that the US panel has, has analyzed, and also in domestic accountability. They have um, referred so far to about slightly over 800 cases of investigations and prosecutions that have already been started and that are either finished or ongoing against domestic perpetrators from various state authorities. And they've, from what I've read um, in, in the public filings, they have provided various types of information to the ICC, to the IC officer, the prosecutor, and to the pretrial chamber so that the pretrial chamber can analyze the scope of this. And having analyzed the scope of the information that was translated and provided, the pretrial chamber decided that the admissibility challenge should be rejected and that the officer, the prosecutor, could proceed with the investigation. Now, of course, one of the comments that the, the pretrial chamber made is that, well, the information provided was very sparse uh, in relation to these domestic proceedings. As you know, the test is that the ICC prosecutor provides a range of cases that could fall under the jurisdiction and that they would be able to, to look into. And then the state needs to show that it has engaged and is engaging with the bulk of these cases. And the assessment of the pretrial chamber is that out of all of this range that has been disclosed under Article 12.8 of the Rome Statute, the government of Venezuela is addressing about half of them. But that out of these, these cases that are being dealt with, most of them relate to 2017. Most of them show significant delays and are focused on low perpetrators only. No high-level, no mid-level perpetrators. And the types of criminality are sometimes not even mentioned. So you would have cases that do not reflect at all the type of criminality that would fall under the ICC under the ICC's jurisdiction. And that is a very important part because it has to be for a case to count. It has to be a case against the same perpetrator for the same criminal activity. And in Venezuela, the crime of persecution is not even a crime under domestic law. So and this is one of the most common crimes that happens. And so this has all, in a sense, been been thrown out. The, the trial chamber said, no, the prosecutor can continue. But now we have an appeal of Venezuela to that decision. I don't think I've seen that before in that sense. So how does that procedurally work? Can Venezuela appeal such a decision from the trial chamber? Yes, absolutely. Um, as I mean, it's a proper part of the legal process where the government of Venezuela is given an opportunity to challenge their legal reasoning course, on, on, on legal points uh, of the pretrial chamber before the appeals chamber. And if I'm not mistaken, the appeal brief of Venezuela was due two days ago on the 14th of August. 
So I, I expect that the submission is probably confidential still. Uh, as the US panel of experts, we've made a request to submit observations on the appeal in an amicus curiae, but we're waiting for the appeals chamber's decision on the matter. And I think we can easily expect that this will take another, you know, two to three months, probably running into the winter with a decision end of the year or early, early next year. So it's only then that I think you could expect the ICC to actually, you know, ICC Office of the Prosecutor to actually be able to resume active work on the ground. But something else that needs to be mentioned that's very interesting is that I think a week or two weeks before the pretrial chamber's decision, Mr. Khan visited Venezuela again and signed another memorandum of understanding with the government. And this time, interestingly, the memorandum of understanding was kept confidential. Now, contrary to the first memorandum of understanding, I think that this raises some very serious concerns for the victims. For the simple reason that if you have, a, to put it simply, if you have a, a referee in a football match that's supposed to be acting independently and impartially, and the referee signs a, an agreement with one of the parties, and this agreement is confidential, I mean, how do you, how can you realistically expect the other party to have faith in the process? No, justice needs to be done and seen to be done. I think this is an integral part of the process. And I think that, that is, for me, causes some very serious concerns. And, and for the victims specifically, because the victims are, they don't really have the choice. They have no other legal forum for which they can go to put any legal claims. And even though this admissibility process delayed the investigation itself, it was the first time that victims were called upon to give their opinion, the observations that were submitted for the, the registries VPRS. And that was a huge deal for Venezuelan victims to have a legal forum before which they can put their thoughts, their complaints, their expectations. So that's where we're at. <laughs> we're in a situation where the, so the prosecutor, once again, before the appeal chamber is arguing that Venezuela is not meeting the standards and then we have deals happening that we don't know about. Martha, can I bring you in to, I don't know to what extent you feel um, comfortable to comment uh, on this from uh, from your perspective if you'd like to do, but maybe also a bit more broadly, what is, I mean, you must also be involved in some kind of a diplomatic soft shoe shuffle to try and how do you work with the government and against government. Maybe you could give it a bit of a broader context from, from your work. How, how does it feel to work with, with a government that, uh, that itself is being accused of committing all of these uh, human rights abuses and covering them up potentially? Well, you know, in terms of the ICC, I think the only thing that I, that I would point out, and Joanne also mentioned it in her wonderful overview, very complete and I think very accurate overview of what has been going on with the ICC process so far, is that there really is a lot of expectation on the ground in Venezuela in relation to the ICC. As Joanna mentioned, from victim associations, from you know human rights defenders that have been documenting these crimes and feel unheard or have felt that they had really nowhere to go. And so one thing that is particular about Venezuela as well in terms of the ICC is that Venezuela is a very strong civil society community, very well educated and, and just, you know, a, a very powerful partner 
in, in justice and for accountability. And so I believe that, you know, the office of the prosecutor uh, must take that into account. And so in any dealings with, with Venezuela, that, you know, transparency should be key, indeed, as Joanna already mentioned. And so, you know, it's important to count on civil society, but also treat them as real partners in, in that process. And when I say civil society, of course, I'm including, you know, as I mentioned, victim associations and others who are supporting them. In terms of, you know, how to deal with states and also their political interests, I mean, you've, you've raised the issue of whether OAS is independent or not. And Joanna, I think, also answered very clearly about the difference between what sometimes may be also initiatives of states, even potentially the referral to the ICC. I mean, this can all, all be argued, the creation of the fact-finding mission as well. This has been, you know, one of the uh, arguments, not only of Venezuela, but of others who, other states who align with Venezuela to attack the findings of the fact-finding mission because of the way that the fact-finding mission was created. And I'm not going to go into that discussion of whether it was politically motivated or not. But what I find interesting is that once you put these processes in motion, so whether it's a panel of experts that is independent or a fact-finding mission that is independent or an ICC investigation, then you start a process that is a technical process led by individuals who are professionals of human rights and international justice and the problem then is that the arguments against their findings are then still political from Venezuela or from others, instead of focusing on the uh, substantive issues. So, you know, something that has been a bit frustrating in, for me in the debates at the Human Rights Council, the interactive dialogues that we've had, is that I would like to hear more from Venezuelan representatives and others who support them on what is it that in our findings is inaccurate, substantively speaking, right? And so I, I'd like that conversation to take place at this stage where what we are presenting are substantive findings about the crimes that are being committed. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's impossible to not have this uh, tension between political interests and justice initiatives because we are indeed dealing in the framework of political organizations very often. But I think we need to make sure that these discussions are more and more focused on the substantive issues, really. And so you know, it's been interesting to navigate that. It's been interesting uh, as representatives of the fact-finding mission also to see how the invasion in Ukraine has shifted the diplomatic context and uh, certain stances or the stances of certain governments towards Venezuela. Joanna already mentioned that Venezuela is presenting itself as a reforming state. We are very much in favor of reforms, of institutional reforms. More than that, we think that what is important is a change in practices within the institutions in Venezuela. And what we've been highlighting is the importance of states to monitor, to document whether there are differences in practices, 
So not only even the institutional reforms or the adoption of of new legislation that purportedly is addressing some of the issues raised by different organizations, but really what are the, the practices? And this is what we've been trying to do is to document individual cases where you can see whether those practices changed. Practices by the state security forces, but by the judiciary as well. And so I think that's the importance of documentation, fact-finding and investigative work, and how that should feed into discussions that are run by by states. You, You probably know this, Venezuela is engaged or has been on and off engaged into a negotiation that has been promoted by other other countries in, in Mexico, uh, negotiations with the opposition also in view of the upcoming elections next year. And what we've been trying to insist on is that human rights topics are high on the priority list in this type of negotiations, in this type of discussions. And so, you know, it's, it, it, it's a whole process and it's an interesting dialogue between justice initiatives and accountability efforts and and states that in, indeed have other interests but i think you know we're i'm personally very pleased to be part of that dialogue and of that struggle to try to keep the attention where it should be i'm just going to round up by saying thank you to both of you for letting us kind of dip our toes in the water of venezuela and we're going to go um, back quite quickly to that we've got another podcast planned on the other efforts to do with universal jurisdiction connected to Venezuela. And it sounds like there are going to be more developments at the ICC that we're going to mean that Venezuela is going to be on our list. So I hope that we'll be able to come back to both of you. Usually we ask a whole series of uh, general asymmetrical haircuts questions, but I'm going to cut straight to the quick here and just ask you to start with Martha and then go to Joanna. Do you have some recommendations? You know, maybe think back what you were actually up to during the summer, if you had a summer. What have you been watching or listening to? Or what have you been reading that you'd like to share with the uh, wider asymmetrical haircuts community? It can be about work, anything that you've been doing to work, or it can be something completely other. What is your guilty pleasure, let's say, or anything that you like to do? that you'd like to share share with people. Martha, I can see you looking very worried about being put on the spot about this, but go ahead. No, you know why? Because my summer for the past uh, now four years has been completely dedicated to our report on Venezuela <laughs> because we're presenting it in, in September. And so as you can imagine, July and August are just crazy months finalizing that. But, you know, I, I, I love documentaries and there are several documentaries on Venezuela. (laughs) One of them is called A La Calle, streaming on HBO. So there you go. One suggestion. It's about the protests, precisely. Joanna, what what are you looking at, listening to, uh, ready to recommend, or what do you do to get away from it all? I'm a big fan of movies. And so two movies that I've seen, but recently that I've been good is the conference. Have you seen the conference? It's absolutely fantastic. It's about the meeting of the Nazi regime in 1947. And it is during that meeting that they agreed on the structure and the implementation of the final solution. 
I think that I do recognise it, the Wanze conference. Uh, is it documentary or is it, it's a kind of partly acted or am, I, or am I mixing it up with something else? It's a movie. But what is fantastic about the movie is that the, the dialogue in the movie is based on the records of the meeting. And when you understand what were the considerations, you know, the financial considerations and the order, because the, the repression had started 10 years before in 1937. So it's after 10 years of culmination of this slowly tightening of civil liberties, slowly tightening of human rights and of, and of the, just the lives of these people, how they came to that point. And it's absolutely fantastic also to see the different, you know, the political agendas be between the different ministries and different personality types involved. Absolutely fantastic. Wonderful movie. And then the other thing that I've seen recently, and I've actually been involved in the documentary, in the making of this documentary, the very good documentary called War and Justice. And it's coming out very soon. Hasn't been, we've had a, a kind of a premiere already in Munich. And it's a documentary by a gentleman called Marcus Vetter. And also with actually with a former prosecutor, Luis Marino Campo. And it engages with a question of war and how damaging war is, whether it's legal war or non-legal war. The casualties and the cost to it is so significant that the option of peace, the option of justice, however imperfect, and it is imperfect on so many respects, is still our best option. These are the two things I would recommend. Oh, that sounds like uh, something we'd want to see uh, when it comes to The Hague, which I'm sure gets some showing in The Hague. And the, the conference also sounds like something for our War Criminals book and movie club. I have seen it. I remember comparing it to uh, The Death of Stalin, which is a hilarious movie, not based on reality, and thinking, actually, this one's a bit serious. So I think uh, I need to watch it in its own context, and uh, then I'm sure I'll agree with Joanna. Well, thank you both so much for taking time out of, for Martha, a super busy schedule if you have to bring out a report in, in September. And hopefully we, we can get back to that report when it comes out in September. And also with Joanna, if there is a decision of the trial chamber or if you uh, your Amici's Curier brief is allowed and you get to speak uh, in front of the ICC, we'd love to meet up with you in The Hague as well. So thank you both so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. The OAS is presenting the next report in November in Washington, focusing on the crimes, so we'll see. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com. And you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>